Expository preaching is our normative way at Gospel Life because we believe that it helps us understand the author in his original context as he unfolds his argumentation. And so it's important for us this morning to do the best we can to understand our context in its, the passage in its context so that we can better reflect and understand the subject at hand, Christian love. Here we have a famous passage of Scripture. I'm sure many of us have heard this passage read outside of context, such as Sunday morning worship gatherings, maybe at wedding ceremonies or the like. But yet I'm not sure how often the context is considered for this so-called love hymn. In the context of this letter to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul is continuing his argumentation that he began at the beginning of chapter 12 and will carry through through chapter 14. The main focus has to do with life together of the church, the, the ministry of the church, what it looks like when they gather for worship, namely the use and exercise of spiritual gifts, and particularly the use of tongues and the gift of prophecy. So what, what prompted Paul to write these words? It was a disagreement. It was a disagreement and a division in the church at Corinth. Though the cause of the division, the church was multifaceted. Here, the focus was on the disunity brought about by feelings of superiority by some and their exercise of gifts, and the feeling of inferiority by others, by maybe their lack or jealousy of other gifts possibly that of tongues. So chapter 12 here at the very end in verse 31, our first verse this morning, works as a linking passage connecting us from what Paul has been building up to the present. Paul has held up spiritual gifts in one hand. Though hard to define in a comprehensive term, the Bible's teaching on spiritual gifts uh, Max Turner offers us a beginning definition. He says this, a, a spiritual gift is a manifestation of the spirit through an individual in an event or enabling for the service of God and or his people. It might be helpful to think of these broadly as grace gifts. It's given by the spirit to all who profess Jesus as Lord. Every single Christian is given grace gifts, spiritual gifts. In verse 4 of chapter 12, he begins to widen our scope of the different manifestations of the Spirit. There are, as he recounts, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there's varieties of activities all empowered by the same God. All of these things, activities, rather seemingly mundane or gifts miraculous, they're all manifestations of the Spirit of God. And as the following verse says then, they're all given, these various gifts, these manifestations by the Spirit of God for the common good for the good of others. 
So right away, we see a relevant application for us today at Gospel Life Church. May we be encouraged in the gifts that God has given us. May we give thanks to one another in the variety, the diversity of gifts that we see in the life of our church. You know, last Sunday we had the chance to hear from our leadership team, from our deacons who will receive various ministries in the life of our church. And let me just say, I am so thankful for our leaders. I'm so thankful for Julie Holbrook and the way that she, by the Spirit, ministers to our youth. So thankful for Beth Blair and the activities that she puts forth, the workings in the Spirit to show hospitality, to, to welcome others in. May we all, may we all as a church, grow in the exercise of our gifts, activities, services. May we delight the diversity of the manifestations of the Spirit and grow in unity in our love which unites us all. So back to these first few verses. Paul, we see a rhetorical progression of him saying no leading up to our section. God does not give the same gifts to everyone. There is a diversity in the body of Christ. And again, this, we can even point back further, looking at God himself, a way to image God himself. Trinity, three and one. One but many. Perfectly united but diverse. Paul gives this exhortation to the Corinthian church to earnestly pursue the diverse giftings, to pursue the higher gifts. So then what does he say next? Holding out spiritual gifts, he raises then his other hand, holding out love. Desire these gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. Paul lifts our eyes to behold the excellent way, the way that is love, true love. This he will do for the full chapter 13 before returning back to the question at hand of the use of spiritual gifts, particularly for the church in Corinth. What is the appropriate exercise of gifts? Again, namely, tongues. And how about prophecy? And spoiler alert, he says the defining criterion for making these judgments is love. With the backdrop of spiritual gifts then, Paul begins to teach the Corinthians about love. Now he uses a pastoral tone here, using the first person, referring to himself. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, the question at hand again for the Corinthians, but have not love, what am I? Well, it's pretty straightforward. Saying you're simply noise. If you speak in tongues without love for those around you, you are simply making noise. Like that of a percussion player getting too excited on the cymbal while the rest of the orchestra stopped playing. I may have been there before. 
Okay, so here's another example. Less charismatic or uh, perhaps flashy gifts. If I have prophetic powers, the gift of knowledge, the gift of faith, and, and faith here, a deep assurance of God's activity going beyond that of saving faith. If I have all of these but not love, what am I? I am nothing. For his third and final example, to make his point, if I give away all I have, some translators may say more literally, dole out in food all of my goods, which refers back to one of the highest functions of the helps, giftings in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Or even if you sacrifice your very self, if you give up your life in the name of Say martyrdom, without love, you gain nothing. This is striking. This to me. It certainly is to our culture today still, a, a culture that says to be generous would be a hallmark of a good person and a good life. So let's dwell on this for a minute. You can give all you have to the poor without true Christian love present at all. So there's a surprise, right? And an important warning for the church. In one of his highly philosophical works, the 18th century giant Jonathan Edwards wrote a dissertation on the true nature of virtue. And then he defended his definition as benevolence towards being in general. Okay, which is to say to have benevolence towards the being, himself, the creator, God, and then subsequently to his creatures. You need to have both in his words to truly be virtuous or what we've been calling to have Christian love. Acts of generosity towards others without of love of God and genuine concern for the others is not true virtue. Charity can indeed come from a place of self-love or selflessness in the name of self-fulfillment and be void of Christian love. Christian love flowing out from the love of God, seeks the other's good. So the motivation is in place for true Christian love. Love for God, love for neighbor. The act then itself, how does love take action? Using this case as an example, right? Generosity, giving to the poor, it's a love that acts in a way that is not merely physical, just that it is not, it is not solely spiritual. Edward, Edwards expounds on, on the two errors that we can fall into in this regard. He says, Some men show a love to others as to their outward man. They are liberal of their worldly substance and often give to the poor, but have no love or concern for the soul's 
of men. Others pretend a great love to men's souls that are not compassionate and charitable towards their bodies. The making a great show of love and pity and distress for soul costs them nothing. But in order to show mercy to men's body, they must part with money out of their pockets. But a true Christian love to our brethren extends both to their souls and bodies. In this way, we see that, that one of the entailments of the gospel is a social concern for the welfare of others, especially the poor and the needy. While believing the good news, the gospel of Jesus, the Spirit does this work in our hearts. As Richard Lovelace puts it, the gospel of Jesus, it settles personal problems and sets the individual Christian to be free from self-concern, true humility, to care for others and to care for society at large. It clears the way for the Holy Spirit to fill the horizon of our consciousness for a love of God and mankind, both, and causes self-concern to dwindle to a small, steady awareness of self-affirmation grounded in the love of God. May the Spirit do such work in our hearts. So to summarize these first few verses, without love, we're noisy. We're nothing. We gain nothing. Without love, we are noisy. We are nothing. We gain nothing. Paul is saying that whatever you might be doing, even with the exercising of gifts that are from the Spirit, you cannot dispense with love. To put it in the positive, all that we do must have at its center, which is to say to be motivated by and carried out in love. Put differently, Richard McBrien, he drove at this point this way. He says, if love is the soul of Christian existence, it must be at the heart of every other Christian virtue. Thus, for example, justice without love is legalism. Faith without love, ideology. Hope without love is self-centeredness. Forgiveness without love is self-abasement. Fortitude without love is recklessness. Generosity without love is extravagance. Care without love is mere duty. Fidelity without love is servitude. It is the virtue that wraps around every other virtue, every act of service, every exercise of gift like a hug that is love. We see in Galatians 5, it is the head of the list that Paul, as he enumerates the fruit of the Spirit. True spiritual life, then, yes, is evidenced by grace gifts of the Spirit, such as prophecy, the gifts of faith or trust, but over that, look to the grace fruits, love. 
Paul will have more to say on this, culminating in verse 13. Love is all-encompassing. Christian love is for every person in every situation. It is indispensable. These verses, I hope, begin to break up our preconceived notions of love, to, to greatly in- increase the scope of love, to begin to see the infinite grandness of God's love and what it looks like to live in light of God's love. God's love radically transforms us. Now you might say to yourself, if I'm being honest, that sounds exhausting. I don't love like that. Except maybe there's some moments I can think back to of such love. What what does this say about me? How do I measure up? I know I'm acutely aware of the ways that I fall short in this, this grand love. For me, you know, I know that God has grown in me a strong love for this church. And yet I must confess, there's oftentimes that I fall short in showing that love. Certainly, not always exercising the gifts that God has given me for the benefit of others, for in conversation, not encouraging the times that maybe I should, or showing the honor in the ways that I should, or using a loving tone as I should, or getting down to kneel for intercessory prayer on your behalf. But thanks be to God for his rich mercy in me. Even what I lack, I can be assured of God's presence by his spirit in me. His work in my heart, growing fruit to love him and to love you. May God continue to do that work of growing my love. May he do the same for all of us. So take heart. I I want you to hear this. And we'll see more of this later in our text. But if there is the slightest evidence of such love, it is God's Spirit working in you. No matter how weak, how wobbly, how shaky or sparse its manifestations, to whatever degree, if we have the love that Paul is speaking about here in this chapter, we are assured of God's work in us. We can be sure of true Christian experience. Because, point two, Christian love is God-reflecting. When asked what the greatest commandment of Scripture was, we're probably not all too surprised that Jesus said to love God, right? To give his answer, he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5. And as if to give a bonus answer, he said this, and the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here he quoted Leviticus 19, 18. Found in the book of Leviticus of all places, Right? which flows from the first and provides an explanation that is very much like 
and in line of what Paul is teaching here regarding what love is and is not. After holding out love so as to be seen as primary, Paul goes on to define what love is. Again, it's not comprehensive here. And, again, we might be surprised with the first word he chooses to define love. How might we begin? Love is patient. Of all the words that he could choose for such a grand topic, but we're helped again when we're reminded of the context. Paul is addressing a church that is divided amongst itself over disagreements. And we begin to see that the way Paul is defining love here is in response to the situation of this Corinthian church. And in honesty, the way Paul defines love here serves as a rebuke to this church. But before we start to look down on the Corinthian church, to be sure such correction is needed for every church in every time and in every place. Here's a list as we see starting in verse 4. Love is patient, kind. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rather love rejoices with the truth. Convicting. Regarding their disagreement and division, the church in Corinth, they were impatient. They were unkind towards others across the divide. They were envious of others' spiritual gifts, or they were boastful about their own, presumably, again, the gift of tongues. In the letter, too, up to this point, we see, looking back in chapter 5, that they were arrogant of moral issues, and, and so on it goes. So this is the remedy then Paul has for them to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. But in what they lack, and in what we lack regarding love, how can we put on this love? Such love that is otherly or, or holy or divine. Well, it's not. It can't be by just simply reconsidering our love for one another or even our love for God. Rather, it is to dwell on God's love for you, which, which no doubt is in view in these verses. God's love. For what? That is how love... Um, subsequently shapes us as we focus on him who is love. So to help us consider this radical nature of God's love, here's a gem. Carson on the distinctive nature of God's love and consequently Christian love is this. If I must say in a few words what is distinct about God's love for us, it is that it is self-originating. When a young man reveals his heart with a passionate declaration, I love you, at least in part he means that he finds the woman he loves lovely. At least some of his love is elicited by the object of that love. 
But God loves what is unlovely. We saw this in our time in the Gospel of John. If we think back right to that famous verse, John 3, 16, there given John's use of the word love, we know that God loves the world despite all of its ugliness and unloveliness due to sin and rebellion. He loves the world because of who he is in himself. Carson continues on. Derivatively, this is how Christians learn to love. They learn to love with love that is like God's love, self-originating. It is self-originating in the sense that God's grace so transforms the believer that his or her response of love emerge out of the matrix of Christian character and are correspondingly less dependent on the loveliness of the object. Beauty and the Beast, right? In this way, the classic tale is true. We were the beast, and we were loved by beauty himself. When the gospel, God's, God's word, God's message of love in Jesus for us, when it penetrates the heart of men and women, God's spirit works to bring about newness of life. Our unlovely hearts, they're made lovely. The curse is reversed, and true love transforms us. Our ugliness turns to beauty. God's love is a transforming love. By grace, May we seek to extend such otherly love to those around us. When we love the other, irrespective of how we ourselves might be treated, we reflect God's love. A love that does not originate in ourselves, but is given to us by God. And this is the work of the Spirit in us so that we can reflect to others God's love. No doubt this love can be costly. Consider the cost of God's love for us, who were wholly other than God as sinners. Right? What does is, what is Apostle Paul say elsewhere about God's love? He says, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were unlovely, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. God's only son, Jesus, left his heavenly throne to enter into frail humanity in order to die on a cross as a substitute for us to atone for our sin. Out of love, out of love, he gave his very self up, holding nothing back from you or from me. So we shouldn't be surprised that true Christian love then, derivatively, leaves us vulnerable, as if in this sense, 
You know, we're, we're, we're giving our very hearts to others. C.S. Lewis said it this way in the work, The Four Loves. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies, little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in the casket, the safe, the dark, the motionless, the airless, it will change. It will not be broken. Rather, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So to love is to be vulnerable. This is the love that God has shown us and by His Spirit He gives us. Even when it's hard, and no doubt life and ministry are hard, we will not walk through this journey without our own difficulties, trials, personal hurts, relational wounds, and scars. And yet God knows exactly what we need. His love is sufficient for us. Even when relationships are strained, it is love that bears all, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So to summarize our point, Dr. Mac Pierce said this in the context of speaking on the topic of racial reconciliation. He says, heavenly experience is being wholly loved by someone wholly different. So we just recounted, right? That's God's love for us, wholly different. And derivatively Christian love is to learn to love wholly those even when they are wholly different from us. This leads to our next point. And I think he's right on this. This, when we do this, when we practice this love, it is a foretaste of heaven. Third point. Christian love is forever enduring. Christian love, in a real sense, is eternity breaking into time. You know, Marilyn Robinson, in one of her novels, Gilead, a story about a dying father, John Ames, writes to his son and remarks this. He says, he says this, there is no justice in love, no proportion to it, and there need not be, because in any specific instance, it is only a glimpse or a parable of the embracing, incomprehensible reality. It makes no sense at all, because it is the eternal breaking in on the temporal. And in our last section here, 1 Corinthians 13, we see this implication that the acts of love done in Christian love, however seemingly mundane, they will echo through eternity. For Christian love is loving now as we will in heaven. And so as we love in this city, where we now reside as hopeful exiles, we know that the city, the eternal city, will come down. And so we pray, may your kingdom 
come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God delights to answer this prayer now by giving you love that reflects who he is and will last into eternity. What bookends this last section is love never ends. And in verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. To make a point of contrast, Paul again holding out spiritual gifts. He says, as good as these are, their purpose is only for this current age. They will cease to be needed. They will pass away at the coming of God's kingdom in fullness upon the return of King Jesus. However, this is not the case with love. No, God's kingdom, heaven on earth, is a place of love. Verse 13, culminating verse, and it reflects back on the whole passage to help us further understand chapter 13. And we see here a triad, a triad of faith, hope, and love. It is a shorthand of sorts for the Apostle Paul that we see elsewhere in his letters, maybe notably in Colossians. Hear what he says about these three in that passage. We always thank God, he says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of the faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for all God's people and the faith and love that spring up from the hope stored for you in heaven. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit throughout the world. The grace gifts are given to us by the sovereign Lord just as the grace fruits foremost love. The Lord grows it in us. And we love here and now by God's grace at work in us. We have one foot in heaven. And our heart Hope gives us patience and endurance until that day where, as the theologians call it, the beautific vision, we will see the face of God. We will be face to face with Jesus. So the culmination of this whole chapter, verse 13, what exactly is Paul saying here? Minister Dick Lucas put it this way. Hear these words. The only things that are going to remain are the things that God works in us, the things that God makes of us, and that of all the gifts that are a means to that end are as nothing and will pass away. But what will not pass away is this God's work in human hearts. So the Apostle Paul says in the very last verse, pursue love. Seek the moral excellent, the more excellent way, the, the way of love. And he says, but also still desire the gifts, exercise the grace gifts of the Spirit that he's appointed to you for the common good. So let us pursue Love as we exercise our spiritual gifts to serve in our church and to serve in our city. In light of this exhortation, Sam Storms gives a very practical, helpful 
encouragement that leads us to our application today. He says this, instead of first asking, what is my gift? Ask the question, who is in need? If God's people would look outward before they look inward, they will encounter the charismatic and empowering presence of the Spirit to equip them for every good deed. If you're still bewildered by what may or may not be your spiritual gift, act first, ask later. If we would devote ourselves to praying, to giving, to helping, to teaching, to serving, and exhorting those around us, the likelihood greatly increases that we will walk headlong into our giftings without ever knowing what happened. God will, will more likely meet us with his gifts in the midst of trying to help his children than ever he would while we're taking a spiritual gifts analysis test. So there's no one path forward here, but in celebrating our diversity of giftings, the grace gifts which God has bestowed upon each of us, here are some opportunities to serve, however the Lord might be leading you. We believe that there are ministries already out there with certain expertise, knowing what they're doing, doing a lot of good already for the good of the city. And so we thought it would be wise to to partner with them to provide a list for us to consider. You can find the list um, on our website on the serve page. Uh, there's also a list of these organizations out on the connect table, which I invite you to, to go take a look at as well after the service. But what, what does that look like? What are the ways that we can partner with these ministries and organizations? Well, we can pray for them. We can volunteer individually or, or collectively together, and we can give generously to them as well to support their efforts. Again, all as the Lord individually leads you. To highlight just a couple ministries now, Arrive Ministries, uh, they're supporting relocated refugee families in Minnesota, uh, refugees, those who have faced persecution and were needing to be re relocated. Would you pray for them? Um, this year especially, they, having an increase, they're expecting about just over 500 refugees this year, um, which is it's a big increase. Would you pray that the Lord provides for them to do the work that they're called to, to, to extend the welcome of Christ to these refugee families? Secondly, prison fellowship. Uh, they provide gospel hope to incarcerated men and women and to their families, to their children. And so we're actually going to have the opportunity, um, organized by Ellie, so thankful for her helping us with Angel Tree, which is uh, around Christmas time, an opportunity to buy gifts uh, for children who might have an incarcerated parent and also opportunities to build relationship with those families as well. So we're so excited for that, for other ministry opportunities as well uh, that, are, that are upcoming. So... With that, my hope and prayer that this morning as we've reflected on Christian love, that we would not hear it simply as good advice or more things to do to add to your task list, but rather that we would avail ourselves to God's grace, the trust in Jesus to grow in the awareness and 
knowledge of God's love for us in Jesus, which is all-encompassing. There's never a moment that God does not love his children. It's self-originating. It's not dependent upon what we do, what we don't do. It originates with God himself, his love for you. And lastly, God's love for his children is forever enduring. Not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So may we be nurtured together. May we be built up in this love as a church together to be equipped for every good work. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, we pray that according to the richness of your glory that you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being that, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that being rooted and grounded in your love, may we have the strength with all the saints to comprehend what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.